Hi guys, welcome back to the Ethic Lights podcast. Today's guest is Fiona Bowman, a successful businesswoman who has spoken publicly about overcoming domestic abuse. Fiona was in an abusive relationship in Scotland and it took her years and the help of her colleagues to flee her abusive partner and start a new life down south. Ever since, she's taken the opportunity to speak about domestic abuse and inspire others who may be suffering to believe that things can be better and there is always a way out. So without further ado, here is Fiona Bowman. Fiona Bowman, welcome to the Earthy Delights podcast. What's the crack? I'm doing well, thank you. I'm good. How's everything going? How's, uh, how is it in uh, North Yorkshire? It's very wet at the moment. <laughs> Isn't it always? But it is beautiful. It's always we, wet and it's always green. So we should we should say to listeners that we are currently recording at the uh, start of July. So to give people a bit of context. Yes. <laughs> and yet it's still really wet. <laughs> yeah, it's the monsoon season. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, Fiona, uh, for, for, for listeners uh, of the podcast might have um, listened to our podcast with uh, Reverend Roger. He's uh, one of our, our favorite guests and uh, he put us into contact with each other um, because of your story, which is quite um, tragic and inspirational, I would say, and probably in equal measure. Um, but for people who maybe aren't quite aware of your story or, or what you what it is that you do now could you just give us like a little bit of a, a backdrop of, of who you are and, and what it is that you kind of went through and what it is that you're you're doing now as a result okay I many many years ago I was in a, a very violent and abusive relationship in Scotland I I met my partner when I was 17 and um, for 11 years I was with him I married him and um, the violence and abuse got worse and worse, as it always does, but I stuck with it. Um, I came from a very strict Protestant background, and and my mother kept taking me back. There were all sorts of things that went on. So um, I eventually ended up in Edinburgh Royal Infirmary Severe Head Injuries Unit, and um, I had the keys. I was working in a bank, and I had the keys to the bank vaults in my handbag, and the hospital wouldn't take responsibility for them. So they asked me for my manager's number, and they rang him and got him to come in. I didn't want to see him, um, but he came in, and that was really the start of my saving because he got someone from HR to come up from London, and they said they would help me, and they did. And they gave me a job 400 miles away in London, covered my tracks, gave me time off to help me, you know, do things, go to see solicitors, banks, all of those things. They were fabulous. Um, And I started my life again with what I stood up in. Um, I just had a little bag and I got myself to London, knew that I had a job on the Monday and work really was the vehicle that carried me through that really dark time. But I didn't even know where I was going to stay. And I ended up um, that night in a what was a DSS hostel um, because I, you know, I didn't know where to go. I didn't have anybody that I knew there. And I, I basically was on my own, but I was away from the, the horror of the abuse. So um, I started again. I started work and I, I worked for many years. It took me 18 years to tell people about the abuse because I was working in different jobs I worked in the bank and then I went to be a facilities manager and I um, did well I I worked in lots of really good jobs I went and worked for some big companies I worked for Goldman Sachs and I was the manager of their London offices and Moscow Paris and Zurich that was exciting Um, I worked for HSBC Bank of America 
you know, lots of places. And I ended up, the, the first point at which I felt comfortable telling my colleagues and bosses that I had been a survivor of domestic abuse was when I was running the Lloyds of London building in the city of London. It's the one with all the funny tubes on the outside. Um, I had 170 staff. So that was the first point that I actually felt able to say anything because I thought if I told people that I would be seen as weak, I would be seen as not able to take on those senior roles. So, um, And that's a reason that a lot of people don't tell anyone. A lot of senior people don't talk about abuse. They don't talk about domestic abuse because they think they'll be perceived as weak. And actually, you know, some of the strongest people are the, the survivors because they're the ones that have been through so much. So um, I started to talk about it, but I, I had been writing a book and um, I put it together and I wanted to publish it. So I rang in 2004, I rang Refuge, the charity, and I said, would you help me publish? And they said, OK, we'll take your story and we'll let you know. So a couple of days later, they rang back and they said, um, we haven't found a publisher, but we found someone who would like to speak to you. So I said, oh, who could that be? And they said, it's Jenny Murray on Radio 4 Women's Hour. So the first time I told my story publicly was on Radio 4. <laughs> wow. So that was incredible. <laughs> and oh I God. just think it was about, you know, it was all those things. You know, I don't kind of do anything by halves. And on that programme was a guy called Chris Davis who was from The Body Shop. And he was helping to start a charity which was called the Corporate Alliance Against Domestic Abuse. And he asked me to be a founder trustee. And he said that my story was so powerful, um, you know, about how my employers had helped. And this was the whole point of this new charity was to try and get employers to help members of staff who were victims and survivors. So I started my first steps into speaking in public were um, through that. And I, I still remember the first time I spoke was at a conference in Edgware Road at the Marriott Hotel, it's local government association. And I went along, as you do, check your audio, you know, go and check the venue. So I went and checked the venue and I thought it was just going to be about 30 people sitting around a table. I thought, you know, it's not going to be a big event. Um, and I went up to the desk and the girl said, oh, we're just about to do sound checks. So I thought, Oh, that's interesting. So we traipsed along this great big corridor and, and she opened the doors to this ballroom <laughs> and there were like all these tables, but room for 600 people. And I sort of right. went, oh, and there were screens up and lecterns and it was like the BAFTAs. <laughs> and I just thought, wow, I wasn't scared. I wasn't nervous. It was really weird. I just felt so kind of amazed at what was going to happen. So I got up on the stage that night started to tell my story and you know what it's like when you're at something like that people talk you know even if there's a speaker there's people rude people giggling and talking somewhere in the room um, and all of a sudden I realized that the whole place was completely silent you could have heard a pin drop there was not a sound and even the waiters had shut the doors and they were standing by the tables so I finished speaking and absolutely as I, as I stopped people started to stand and clap and there was a whole kind of standing ovation. And I thought, I have the power, I have this voice, and I have the chance to go out and talk to businesses, talk to people about how important it is, and tell my story in a way that resonates and that, that is powerful, mm. not in a loud way, not in a shouty way, but just, you know, I think I said 
that still small voice of mm. calm. And I, that's always the approach that I've had. So that was many years ago, and I have been campaigning ever since. I've done so many things which I can tell you about. But, yeah, lots of things. So I I was living down in the south, and two years ago, uh, my husband and I decided we were going to move somewhere gentler, um, more peaceful, and we moved to North Yorkshire, and it's been amazing. So I carry on my campaigning. I've been doing lots of things around here and with Northumbria Police and all sorts of people. So, um, yeah, still doing it and still telling that story. And I, I will continue to mm. do that with every breath that I have. Beautiful. Wow. So that's potted well, with all that experience, talking to Jim and I will be an absolute doddle. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to go, Jim and I, we, we were talking before and we were wondering how to kind of attack this story and what way we should do it. I think we decided that we were going to try and go through it chronologically if possible, just so that people can kind of follow it and, and um, kind of see the evolution, I guess. Um, so I want to take you all the way back. You said that you met um, <clears throat> your, the abusive partner when you were 17 in Glasgow, am I correct? Edinburgh, sorry, my bad, in Edinburgh. Um, and uh, you said that it got progressively worse as, as the, you know, as it went on, as the relationship went on, what was the first kind of signs of abusive rela- abusive behaviour, whether that was physical or emotional or, or whatever it may have been? I think knowing what I know now, the first signs were when I first met him. Right. Um, very quickly, he wanted to see me every night. He wanted to be there. I was training to be a nurse. Um, I was at college. He wanted to, you know, he wanted to meet me, wanted to come to the college. He was always there. He was always around. He didn't like me nursing male patients. He didn't like me having male colleagues. You know, there were a whole number of things that um, he he didn't like, and he he kept turning up. I would go and do different placements at different hospitals in Edinburgh, some quite far away, and he would always manage to turn up. He'd be turning up, hanging about outside, and I think it's. You know, it's that first, it's the, the pressure. And it's, oh, I'm so in love with you. You know, I want to marry you. It's early declarations of love. It's uh, big red flags that I know about mm. now. But it's that, uh, you know, the, can start, the control starts really early. And I, I wasn't in a good place. You know, I was, my self-esteem was really low. I didn't, you know, I, I had never really learned how to say no. I'd never really learned how to challenge someone. I'd come from a background where there were no arguments and you know you didn't <laughs> you didn't have arguments with people so I, I never learned any of those skills I'd never learned that as a young woman and I think I wasn't you know very confident and he saw that he saw that I was quite vulnerable and that's again what perpetrators see they see someone who's vulnerable they're naive you know they're they're easily kind of manipulated and he gradually cut me off from friends and family he, you know, just started to control my life, wanted me to move in with him. Then after about a year and a half, he got me to leave the course. He convinced me that it wasn't for me and that I needed to go and get another kind of job because, you know, nursing wasn't for me. Um, and there were lots of points in that time where, you know, I wasn't telling anybody what was going on. I was scared of him. I was scared of the, the retaliation. I was scared. He had hit me by then. He He had... Um, physically abused me he, but it was mental abuse as well it was a control 
it was the verbal abuse, it was the names, it was all of those things. It, and it just starts very slowly. You don't realise, and it isn't until you're in it that you realise, and then it's kind of too late. But sometimes, um, I know myself as a, a kind of an intelligent young woman, you think, well, I can change him. You know, I can make this different. I can, you know, mm. I can change his life. And actually, the point at which I reached <laughs> where I thought, this isn't going to change, you know, it, when it got to the point I was in hospital. Um, and that that was a progression. That was a whole progression of things. So people don't realise when they, when they start to get with someone who's like that, who's controlling, who always needs to be there, who always needs to know what you're doing, when you're coming back, you know, if you go shopping, where have you been, what have you been doing? And at work it's really hard because, you know, you're trying to get on with your day job and, and you're maybe getting phone calls or, Nowadays, it would be texts, you know, what you're doing, who are you with? It's all that stuff. And it's and it's wrapped up as love. It's wrapped up as, you know, I'm so I wouldn't I'm, I would never do this to anyone else. You know, I you know, you're the only person that makes me this angry because I love you so much. That's it's wrapped up mm. in that. And I think that's where people they don't know. They don't know whether it is love because he, this person is so charming so lovely you know other people go oh what a lovely person you know how charming how nice and and they can be you know they can be very charming and very nice and very helpful but actually to you in private they're being horrible and so then they start to you know they start to build that little wall around you where you can't you know if you told someone they go oh don't think so he's he's a nice guy you know <laughs> he's always nice to me and I think it's that. And then mm. they, you know, they'll start to discredit you to your work colleagues. They'll start to say things that, you know, there's, there's a whole number of things. It's that coercion and control that, that that starts, carries on. And there are so many different forms of abuse. You know, there's financial abuse, there's emotional abuse, there's verbal abuse, there's sexual abuse, there's, you know, a whole raft of things that go on. And it doesn't happen all the time. You'll have a period of time where it starts to build up, build up, build up. And then there'll be a, a violent attack. And I always say the hurt is where it stops. And then there'll be calm. And then he'll promise he'll never do it again. And you want to believe him. So you carry on. You know, you keep going or you go back or whatever. And it's that. It's it's a it's a, a wish that everything could be all right. You know, you want it to be all right. You want things to change. You want things to be better. But it never is. And I think you become really brainwashed. I think that's one of the things. And when I speak, um, there's a, a page from a CIA brainwashing manual <laughs> that I used to show to people. And it was about that. It's all the same things that perpetrators do to their, their victims. And it's, yeah, it just builds up and builds up. And I think you you keep hoping that it will be better and the next time and the next time. And it isn't. And then you stop. You You, you become worthless. You think you are worthless. You don't think you're worth saving. So people, you know, will say to you, you, you need to leave, you need to go. I was in the opposite camp. My mother kept taking me back. She believed that marriage was for life and that I had made my bed and I must lie in it. My uncle was the minister of Church of Scotland who married us. So the embarrassment for her, you know, to go to him and say that it hadn't worked, that was worse than me actually, you know, coming to a place of safety. And even when I'd been in hospital, she took me back, supposed to be to get some clothes, but actually she sat us down and talked to us and tried to get us to reconcile. And it was that point I thought, this is, 
like I've got nowhere else to go. I, I can't go back. I was, my father was also really elderly, and I was always worried that he would go and do something horrible to him. But what I know now is that mostly perpetrators just focus on the, the victim. They won't do things to other people. They won't beat other people up. They, they just beat the victim up. So, yeah, that if you, you know, think from the very start and if anybody's thinking about friends or family members who are in a relationship like that and have seen any of those things, um, somebody once said to me, a policeman, I think it was, he said, if it looks like fish and it smells like fish, it's fish. <laughs> and I think it's the same with domestic abuse. If you suspect, if you think that there's something going on, you're probably right. And the person will deny it. I lied. I had the best lies going. And I got caught out a couple of times. I was on my way to work one day. Um, and it was always that thing in the morning. He would make me late. He would hide my keys. He would have a go at me for what I was wearing. I had makeup on. I had nice clothes on. Who are you seeing? You know, who are you having an affair with? It was all that. And I would end up getting really upset. And I was often late. And I was on a bus late and I'd been late lots of times so when I got to work I said oh I was in Edinburgh I said oh there was a lorry jackknifed on the Gorgie Road the bus got held up so they just kind of went yeah okay then so um, <laughs> the next day I got on the bus and would you believe there was a lorry jackknifed on the Gorgie Road and the bus was held up? So I couldn't I couldn't use that excuse. <laughs> I had to make another story up. I think I said I'd just been held up or slept in or something. So, you know, there's all these really strange things that happen. But you tell lies, you tell lies about you, your injuries, you've got black eyes or bruises or whatever. You tell people lies. You know, I walked into a cupboard. I've got... Oh, I could write a handbook and so could most other survivors because there's always you're always trying to justify and people see it and they kind of know, but they don't ask the second question. They'll say, are you all right? And you go, yeah, 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 I'm fine. And then they don't ask anything else. And it's that it's that they don't want to interfere. They don't want to, you know, ask you a difficult question and then be landed with the outcome. I think sometimes people are reluctant to get involved because they don't know what to do. They don't know how to help. And and what I say to businesses is you don't have to be the expert. You don't have to reinvent wheels. You can just point people to the, the people that are out there. There is a whole raft of you know support services out there for people that you can go to. And you might never know that you've helped someone. If you put the, the number of the domestic abuse helpline on the side of the coffee machine, somebody might just use that or on the back of a toilet door, all these campaigns. That's where sometimes people won't even tell you that they've sought help and you have helped them. And you could save a life. You know, I, I know that the next time he beat me up, he would probably have killed me or the time after that. That was how severe the, the beating was. And the beatings got worse. And I think that's what people know. They, they know. I've heard people say to me, you know, she's going to come out in a body bag. We know that. And that's appalling. How, you know, how can you as a family or how can you as friends of someone know that and still not do anything? So I think there are, there are, real, there are really good things going on in the community now. I think there, are, there is far more awareness from when I started sort of 18 years ago, um, starting to campaign. There, there are much, much more 
many more people who are willing to step out and do something. But but people are still scared and it's still a bit of a taboo subject. But I just think that, you know, workplace, there are there's something like 65 million people in Britain and 31 million people working. You know, so you've got 31 million people. So if you work on the, there's a, a number that people quote, which I don't know how right or wrong it is anymore. One in four women and one in six men are at some point affected by domestic abuse in their lifetimes, people in the workplace. So if you if you work on that, there, there are around about six million people in workplaces who are somehow affected by domestic abuse right now, right here, right now. So that's that's a massive number. And there are two women a week, more than that at the moment because of lockdown, but the, the number was two women a week killed by their partners as a result of domestic abuse. If there were two women or two people a week getting killed at a football ground, they would be, you know, <laughs> outcry. But because it's happening and, and these women have, and men, there you know, it's men are abused as well. And I think it's important to, to remember that because there has been a lot of focus on women and girls, but actually there are men who are not talking about it, not coming out and talking about it. Um, and I think if, you know, if, if that was happening to in another bit of the world, there, there would be a huge outcry. There'd be, you know, the front of the, the sun, the Daily Mirror, whatever paper you read, there would be people jumping up and down. But because these people are faceless, they, people don't know who they are. There's a, a, a lady who's actually doing it. She's got a, a Twitter account. It's called Counting Dead Women. And every time someone is killed, she puts their name on and, and remembers them. And I think that's that's quite sad, isn't it? that people are dying and that workplaces could be saving people. They could save lives. And if you went home from work tomorrow and said, what did you do today? You know, I saved a life just by reaching out and helping someone. Mm. It's incredible. You don't realise the, the enormity of it or the, the power that you have as a, as a person, just a person in the, the workplace, large company, small company. I just wanted to, um, <clears throat> to take you back to a point that you made there. Um, where you said that you most victims always hope that they can change they can be the person who changes the person um yeah. and it makes it reminds me to be fair of a lot of my friends actually in a lot of relationships that they're in um where whether it's classed as domestic abuse or just maybe not a fully functioning relationship but there's problems that are, re are reoccurring and it's always the hope yeah. of Oh yeah, but eventually, you know, I'll change him. And I always used to say to my friends, uh, kind of like tongue in cheek, but I guess what you're saying, maybe it gives it more validity. But I always used to say to my friends, it appears to me that girls want the dickhead, but they want him to change to Prince Charming once he, once he gets with the girl. And it always seemed to me that that was the way, just maybe very juvenile, but it seemed to me that that was the way that they want the yeah. bad boy, but they only, but they don't want him to be yes. a bad boy forever. They want him to turn into Prince Charming. No the minute he becomes the boyfriend yes. i'm like well if he's a bad boy to start with he's probably going to be a bad boy in the yeah. relationship too and what yeah. what do you think that is why why do you think um do you first of all do you think that's kind of inherent to women that they want to be able to change or they think that they can change the person and why do you think that is where do they kind of where do they get that idea from why do they get that idea or that that hope when arguably there's never been you know, in, the, in these examples, there's never been an example or or a circumstance to show that they are going to change. So it kind of seemed 
almost silly to to think that you could be the one if they have a, if they have previous showing you you know time after time what their behavior is who they are as a person i think fundamentally people they always see the best they always want to see the best and they want if they see someone that they they like someone that they love that they want them they want the best for them um so i think i don't think they set out to change them i don't think they realize but i think that they think they have the power to do that um and if it's not working then you shouldn't be even going there you, you know you should be getting yourself out and get yourself into another place because that's not the right relationship for you but some there's so much pressure from the world about people getting into relationships having a boyfriend having a partner have a husband have children you know how much pressure is there in the world for that mm. and people how do they choose the partners nowadays you know how do you choose a partner it's mostly online it's you know there, there are very few places that where i come from in scotland you would know everybody and probably ireland you know everybody you know the town everybody knows everybody and everybody knows everybody's sons daughters you know oh that's so and so and that's and and you would know the background you would know if somebody was a, a bad boy or whatever but nowadays you don't have that we live in such huge conurbations you can be whoever you want to be you can reinvent yourself you can move to another city and, and call yourself something else so there is, there is far less chance that you would actually know someone really know them and i think it's human nature you want to rescue there's a thing around rescuing isn't there that you want if you see someone who's struggling about you you want to rescue them you want to be kind to them you want them to have a good life and that's not bad that's not a bad thing but it's about how far do you go in that rescuing mm. i think it's about how people that's really you know the only way i can see it is about how people just they just they want to turn their partner into whoever they imagined marrying and it's not just women you know men want to do that yeah. too you know some men want the women that they're with to be a particular size shape whatever yeah. <laughs> and it's you know so if that's not happening then it's you know and that's about control that's about being controlling that's about being controlling and coercive so you what you're saying to me is that there are some women out there who are quite controlling and they want to actually change the people that they're with so there are women who abuse men there are controlling women so i think it's it's about seeing and you know in a relationship who who has the control where that sits and and whether or not that's healthy the the best relationships are the balanced ones where there is you know equal amounts of you know <laughs> control or not control i think the happiest the happiest relationships are ones where people are equals they're they're you know in a, a relationship they give they take they you know they bring something to the table they they have time away they bring things back people are living on top of each other a lot at the moment aren't they you know living in lockdown is so hard you know when you're mm -hmm. living 24/7 with someone you really get to know what they what they're like and and if it's not exactly what you imagine then yeah of course you're going to try and make it better you're going to try and make it if you can and then if you can't then you have to make a different decision but lots of people are stuck in abusive relationships in lockdown that must be horrendous i think there was one perpetrator quoted as saying when they when boris johnson announced the lockdown uh, he said let the games begin 
that's what you're, you know, <laughs> there are people out there who can't, they can't speak, they can't tell. And I think we're going to have a, a, a huge outfall after lockdown is finishes. People that have had to keep quiet have not done anything. There is going to be a massive outfall of people who need to get away from their abusive partners. But the, the interesting thing, uh, in lockdown, there were lots of reports of lots more domestic abuse happening. But actually, the, the Met Police did some stats and they found that there was a, a 40% increase in third party reporting because everybody was at home, because everybody was living in their houses and close in close mm. proximity. There were more people reporting so neighbours, friends, whatever, than ever, which is incredible because that never used to happen. You know, people wouldn't interfere, they wouldn't say anything, and now there's been a lot of advertising and, and domestic abuse has had a far bigger platform and people understand it better. So now you're seeing people reporting it and report if they hear something and that it's okay to do that, and that's good. I think that's fabulous. I think that's fantastic because that's what we need. You know, I, I was being beaten up and I managed to get out of the house and I ran down the stairs, ran out the front and everybody just stood and looked at me and I was shouting to get the police and nobody moved. Nobody did anything and they all went back in and I, all I wanted to hear was a police siren. Nobody did anything. Then he took me back in and he carried on beating me up because I'd embarrassed him in front of the neighbours. And that's how it used to be. But I think if, if things have changed, if people are more willing to report, if people are more willing to step out, I think that's great. And in workplaces, it's about changing the culture. It's not just about having a domestic abuse policy in, in the drawer. That's, yeah, that's the last thing you put in place. You start to change the culture. You start to talk about it. You start to get people as champions, you know, use your structure, get people who are interested, have people that your staff can go to, you know, people that they can talk to and have all the, the places that people want to, you know, have support. Put that put that out there so people have got it. And that, you know, if we change the culture, if we change the understanding, that will make a difference. That will help. There's a, a charity in Essex, Alpha Vesta, who are, through lockdown, I've been doing some work with them, and they started at the beginning of lockdown, they started up this charity to raise awareness in workplaces. And then all of a sudden lockdown happened and they thought, oh, what are we going to do? And actually they've been running courses free online. They got funding from the National Lottery, funding from the PCC, and they run these courses online free of charge for anybody about all the different elements of domestic abuse. And that's that's the way to do it. That's how, you know, raise awareness, let people know, let people know what the signs and the symptoms are and, help people you know that way whether it's uh, a parent because you there are so many other forms you know you've got um, mothers and refugees fleeing from their 16 year old sons that's domestic abuse you've got you know grandparents being abused by family members you've got you know sibling you've got same-sex partnerships where there is serious violence going on lots of things and and people don't think about that they just think of you know, men hitting women, all the, the kind of the, the, the picture that you sometimes see in an advert. But there's far, far more than that. Lots, lots of different things that happen. And I think it's about people starting to understand that and seeing it and understanding what's what's going on in the world and how they can help, how they can, 
make a difference just by reaching out a hand. It's that compassion. That's what the HR person did for me. She said to me, you won't be listening to me right now, but when you're ready, she said, here's my business card. Give me a call and I'll help you. I'll help you escape. And it took me weeks. It took me weeks to call her. And then when I did, I was terrified, absolutely terrified. And up to the point that I actually physically left, I was terrified because he wouldn't have let me go. I was the one subsidising everything. I was the one keeping the whole thing afloat. You know, he wouldn't have wanted me to walk away. And I had a dog, and that's another reason people don't go. They have pets. I had a, a Heidi, an old English sheepdog, and I had to leave her. And that was one of the worst things I've ever had to do. One of the hardest things is to leave your pet and go. And I, and that that's why people don't leave. You know, people say, why doesn't she leave? Why doesn't he leave? There are so many things pulling you back. You know, if you've got children, they want, you know, they want the, pet, the kids to have two parents. But if you're in a horrible, abusive relationship, the children can see it. The, the kids aren't upstairs sleeping when it's all going off. They know what's going on and it's it's damaging. And that's what we're finding. There are so many links between children who've seen domestic abuse and knife crime, gangs, drugs, all of that. There are absolute connections between all of those. Uh, you know, the county line stuff, it's it's all connected. That it's It's been proven um, that, that there are connections there. So I think we we need to we need to change society. We need to change the way that we deal with all of these things and get. I think this is a generational thing. This is not going to get fixed next week or next month or whatever. This is going to be, you know, next generation if we're very lucky. And it's about talking to younger people, talking to young guys in school about, you know, violence and about how they behave. And that there's a fabulous thing going on. There's a guy called Graham Golden who is in Scotland. I think he was in the um, – he was – part of the violent crime unit in Scotland. He's now no longer a policeman, but he goes out and he talks to young men and he, and he mentors and coaches young men and teaches them how to approach their peers and how to get them to talk to their friends about violence and about domestic abuse and how, you know, there's some brilliant stuff going on. There's a quote that I know, which is Desmond Tutu. He said, we've got a stop pulling people out of the river we've got to go up river and find out why they're falling in and that's you know we've, we've got to we've got to start doing something a bit different there's there's lot there are lots of people doing fantastic work out there but we just there's, there's a new domestic abuse commissioner a lady called Nicole Jacobs um the domestic abuse bill was passed in April and she's now become fully operational as a uh, commissioner and she's doing a, a fabulous piece of work which is looking at the whole country and looking at the support that's out there and looking at the postcode lottery that exists at the moment about help that's out there so there are lots of good things happening the police are doing good stuff there are lots of you know superb people doing lovely things but I think we just need to move this on a, a tad <laughs> Fiona I absolutely love that quote that you mentioned uh, with Desmond Tutu's quote, and obviously, as you mentioned, this is incredibly complex. Mm. There are so many reasons as to why someone wouldn't leave. And, but, but one thing that came to mind was when I was doing a bit of research before this podcast and hearing you talk about um, your own experience where uh, this man in question would say, 
only yeah. you would make me this angry because I love you so much. Um, and I've heard similar stories um, from other women. And I wonder, do you think also that it's it's partly due to like a, a kind of a, a problematic conception of what love is um, and like what what you permit if in fact you believe this is love between you and this person and even the idea that you mentioned that you you can't you went to your mother and your mother said ah oh, well like your, your mother had the priority of like the idea of love and marriage despite you explaining to her that you're being taken about do you think this idea of love like it kind of holds this power like this this idea that you you will permit a lot more than usual just because exactly of right. this really this false conception like of love but yes i think if people somebody tells you that they love you that that gets all those endorphins going around doesn't it you get that lovely feeling and then if that same person does something to hurt mm. you and then tells you that they love you and they've only done it because they love you because they care about you so much then that's their reinforcing that mm. love thing so yes i've never really looked into that as much you know as you obviously have but yes i think you might be right I, I, it's an interesting prospect yeah <laughs> i think uh, something very similar happens with family members as well where we're a lot mm. more willing to kind of accept bad behavior or consistent bad behavior from be that an uncle a cousin a sister mm. a brother and we kind of inherently just forgive them because they are an uncle, a sister, a brother, a cousin, or whatever. Yes. Whereas if they were a friend, you know, after the second time, maybe you'd stop calling them a friend, but you yes. feel like you have yes. to forgive because, oh no, but you know what, what uncle John's like, and he's your uncle and he'll yeah. be over at Christmas. So yeah. you feel like, oh, okay, fine. And I feel, you know, That's it's probably right. something very similar. Like Jim says, is that when someone says, says oh. you love them, they love you, yeah. sorry. You, you you just accept behavior that you wouldn't do in any yes. other circumstance in reality. Yes. And I think the fact that they make you feel that it is your fault, that it is you, so you're 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 more accepting of it. You know, it's your fault. You you've done this, you've behaved badly, you've done mm. something to upset me. So and and you start to think, Did I? Mm. You know, have I? It's yeah. hard. It's really hard. There's a somebody asked me after a, um, I did a presentation a few weeks ago to Devon and Cornwall Police, which in lockdown it's great because I don't have to jump on a train. <laughs> <laughs> I've been all over the place doing things. Um, and somebody asked me, and it was the first time I've ever been asked the question, was about survival, and it was about what was it in you that helped you to survive? You know, why did you come through this and other people don't? And I think there's a there's a quote that I've seen. It's a Tolstoy. I think is it Leo Leo Tolstoy? It says there is something in the human spirit that will survive and prevail. There is a tiny and brilliant light burning in the heart of man that will not go out, no matter how dark the world becomes. And I just think that that there is something in each of us. There is something in me that kept me going. There's something in every survivor that you've ever seen or known. Survival from all sorts of things, not just domestic abuse. And it's that there is something in the human spirit that keeps people going, mm. keeps people, you know, they can see that there is a better life. I, you know, I, I was going to throw myself under a train at one point and I was about to do it. And then I thought, no, there is more to life. There is another life somewhere mm. for me. 
there is there is more to life than this and i think that's hard but i think there's a, a thing around faith you know i i when i i spoke to you in the preparation for this um you know i i didn't go anywhere near church for a long long time because i believed that i was such an awful person and i think that's what happens and it's funny because i think churches wonder why people don't come but they don't actually know that some people feel unworthy they 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 don't feel like they can walk into a church and i felt like that for a very long time i went a very long time not going to church not even believing that you know i could it was like i thought i think i said i thought there would be a bolt of lightning come down and you sort of <laughs> minute i walked in the church door and and that you know, so many people say that if you have a faith, if you have faith, you know, churches can look after people, churches can help people. And and I think you, there are so many people who are away from it that don't feel worthy to walk in the doors of a mm. church. And you would never know why. You never know what it is. But such horrible things happen that you think, no, I can't go there. And I think that's that's hard i think one of the things as well is and we spoke about this with um it's why we loved the conversation that we had with reverend roger is that a lot of people from the church be it you know an actual father or people who just attend the mm. church on a regular basis they come across as whiter mm. than white and uh yes. you know and then sometimes you catch people out and you catch them in their bad behaviors and then you think oh actually well if this was you know you're preaching all of this good stuff but then actually you're an abuser or you're this or you're that i don't want anything to do with you whereas you know people like that's why people like roger are so so important for a church because yeah. he he's a yes he's the father and he can talk to you at length about the yeah. bible and everything else that goes with that but he's yeah. also human and you can see his you yeah. can see that he's got flaws and that actually makes him more like yeah. if i had him when i was younger going That's to true. church i'd maybe be more connected to my faith now whereas when you have people preaching yes. how perfect they are and follow their lead all the time and then you kind of like well yeah. you're not that perfect and then it, that kind of makes you more no. disillusioned with the whole process <laughs> i wanted to ask something you spoke about I the know. survival um that like it that inner nature that we have as humans and ha <clears throat> did you ever reconcile what happened um with you and your partner with your mother because to me, it feels like every time, you know, maybe you reached out to your mom or an incident happened and your, you, you know, your mother would have been involved. That's almost the image that I have in my head is like someone drowning and they finally push their head up above the water to, to grab a breath. Mm. And then it just from what you're telling me, it kind of feels as if your mom was just kind of grabbing your head and pushing it back down under the water. And that, mm. that might be really strong imagery there, but I, I just wondered like how, once you did finally get away, and you created this new life down south. How did you then, if you did at all, reconcile that with your mum? And mm -hmm. yeah, I, just, I, I don't know if you could elaborate on that for me because I'm really lost for words. I, I didn't. I right. didn't. I never really. We never had that conversation, and I never really forgave her. But I don't think she realised quite what she'd yeah. done. She was so wrapped up in her Christianity. She was so wrapped up in the world that she lived in she she didn't i don't think she could have been any different she used to lecture me about you know you know when i was in hospital she came into the hospital and she i really badly beaten up i've got you know cracked skull i've got black eyes i've got broken nose you know mess my whole body was a mess and she said why you know why did you you must have made him very angry you must have done something to make him angry and I said, yeah, I went out for a drink with my friend from work. 
oh well married women don't go out drinking you don't go out drinking with your friends you know it's, it was all that it was always that kind of <laughs> it was me i was the problem yeah. it was my yeah. fault you should have been at home cooking his dinner you should have been at home making his you know ironing his shirts that was her favorite ironing his shirts that's the perfect woman isn't it the perfect wife stay at home <laughs> cook clean and iron mm. shirts and that was yeah and and I, as i say afterwards I never did reconcile with her, and she died in 1995. And when she died, I can say I was kind of relieved. I was kind of relieved that she was gone because I I had so much kind of hurt. <laughs> I had so much hurt in my heart, and and there's a lot of stuff around Christianity about forgiveness and forgiving people, and I I, I just couldn't. Mm. I forgave myself for having gone through that and got into that situation but I, I couldn't really forgive her I, I yeah my father died five years before that and he was he was very old he was 81 um he was 61 when he had me so he was effectively my kind of uh, an age of someone's grandfather mm. um so he was yeah. you know older he died when he was 94 so he didn't you know he was around for quite a long time and he was different he he and i had a different relationship and he i still remember when i went to marry this guy um my father was walking me through the hotel that we got married in because we didn't get married in church because he wasn't a church person and it was my uncle that was going to be the minister um we're walking through the hotel and my father said the car is there if you want to leave now we can i've paid for the reception we can have the party you know if you want to come and jump in the car with me now we can go and I said no no it's okay and I was too scared of the repercussions mm. I was too scared of what he would do to me to my father whatever um you know in terms of the repercussions of me standing him up at the altar that would have been horrendous but I couldn't report him his brother was in the CID his mother worked at the police station so I couldn't go to the police you know a lot of people can go and report these people but I couldn't you know, it was again. It was. It was almost like the the world around me was in was conspiring. You know, my mother wasn't supportive. His parents. You know, I couldn't report him because they were all part of that infrastructure that was there that I should have been able to go to, but I couldn't. So I think, yeah, I I don't feel bad. I was just, and and I also found out because I was doing training for Surrey police officers. There's a, an amazing lady called Michelle Blunts, Blunson who runs ESTAS, which is East Surrey Domestic Abuse Service. And she and I um, got together with Surrey Police and we were doing a, an extra sort of level of training for the police officers. They do a thing called DA Matters. All the police officers get that. But we did this extra thing to try and get them to use their professional judgment, which they don't often get to do. Um, and we, we were doing training. And every time I finished, the police officers used to say, where is he? You know, <laughs> where is he? We're going to get him. And I didn't know where he was because I didn't want to know because I didn't want my life to be limited. I knew he was in Scotland, but I didn't want to not go somewhere because he might be there. Um, but I, I got some courage and I looked on Scotland's people. There's a registry Scotland's people and I looked on and I found his birth certificate found our marriage certificate found our divorce papers and then I thought hmm this was about ooh, 2017 and I found somebody that a death 
with his name and a, and a date of birth. And I sent off £12.95 for the death certificate. You can do that. And I got to, and I waited and, and it came back and it was him. And he had died 10 years earlier. He died in 2007. And for those 10 years, I had still looked over my shoulder and, you know, at times thought about it. And I thought, you know, I could have saved myself all this angst <laughs> if I'd have known. But I was, it was that you were caught in that thing where, you know, you can't go whoop, whoop, holler, fantastic, somebody's died. But it was the relief. It was the peace that came with knowing that he couldn't couldn't ever hurt me again and he couldn't hurt anyone mm -hmm. else. So I think it's that. You you have these odd it's almost like you, you shouldn't be thinking like that. You know, if you're a good person you shouldn't be thinking about I was I was I was just at peace and I've and since then I've been so much more at peace about it. And I've been able to step out and talk more and, you know, be more open about some of the stuff that went on. So it's in a good way. You know, it's a, a kind of another bit of catharsis. Fiona, you mentioned the the kind of fear of what he would possibly do to you and your family, and um, I guess uh, I I wanted to like somehow subtly or with some nuance cover that question of like why doesn't why don't they leave? And I guess I'm sure you know this, but just even for listeners that I found out that the Statistics yes. were like 90% yes. of domestic abuse murders occur after the relationship yes. ends. So that's those statistics are absolutely startling, yes. aren't they? In, in, in terms are, of justifying this person's absolute fear for their life. There's you know? um, Claire Bernal. Um, she was working in absolutely. Harvey Nichols. And um, she went out with a guy who was a security officer. Um, she didn't go out with him for, I think, about three weeks. But then he started to stalk her. She didn't want to go out with them. She knew there was something wrong. Um, long story short, and, you know, with no disrespect, he came back. She was working at a beauty counter in Harvey Nichols, and he came in with a gun and shot her and then shot himself. And, you know, I know her mother. I've met her. You know, Tricia Burnell is an amazing woman who goes out in campaigns, okay. you know, for people not to be, you know, about stalking, about it's that after, you know, they're Jane and, um, Jane Clough, wow. Penny and John Clough are her parents. Um, she was killed. She was a nurse. She was um, with a paramedic, and he came to the car park in the hospital. He knew where she was. You know, they know when you when you've left, you're still going to work. You're still in the place that they know you'll be at a time they'll know you'll be there. And he killed her. You know, Holly Gazard. I don't know if you've heard of her. Um, she was mm. a hairdresser in Gloucester. And she finished the relationship, and and oh, Asher yeah. Maslin he came back with a knife. He went. He's on CCTV in Wilkinson's, I think, buying knives and things. And he came back to to a um, hairdressing salon and murdered her there. So that there are lots and lots of and and all of these stories go together to to tell one big one, which is after you've left, it doesn't stop. It doesn't stop when it's finished. It's about you know, there are people who are really high risk. There's a, a lady mm. called Dr. Jane Monckton-Smith who has written a homicide timeline for domestic abuse and all the different levels. There are eight stages and the final stage is the homicide. But in within that, every homicide that she's looked at, the same patterns occur. So she's trying to teach police forces, you know, to show them what the patterns are. And sometimes someone will go from, you know, 
stage six, seven, eight really quickly. You know, they'll go through that. But things it's about certain things happening, certain things changing. And there's a, a charity called After Advocacy, After Fatal Domestic Abuse. And the guy that runs that, Frank Mullane, his sister was murdered by her partner. And she kept saying to him, he's going to kill me. She, He knew, she knew. And, and he said, over my dead body. And, and he said, actually, it was over hers. And it was her and her son. So he started this charity and he's done the most phenomenal work. He has actually got now, there's a thing called a domestic homicide review. So every time someone is murdered as a result of domestic abuse, there is a review done and the police and all the other agencies that have maybe been involved. Um, he, he talks about it being, it's a way of shining a light on the past to illuminate the future. And it's about trying to see what we could do better. It's not a finger pointing exercise. It's not about having a go at people and people being sacked. It's about saying, what could we have done better? Mm. You know, what did we miss in the process? So your point is really well made. It's not, yeah. It's not just after. And I think there are lots of people out there who have never talked about their abuse. And the more we go out there and talk about it, there are people who it happened to years ago. And there is a legacy of the impacts of abuse, which I, I'm going to write about. Um, that's my next book. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to get you back on for that then. <laughs> but <it> is, absolutely. <laughs> but there is, there's, there's a legacy that goes on for years and years. Things You wouldn't know. I have a titanium strip in my nose implanted by a surgeon because my nose was broken so many times that my septum wouldn't stand up. But you wouldn't know. You look at me and I'm like just a normal person. And there are, there are lots of things, you know, that you can talk about impacts, impacts on health, impacts on pensions. You know, I've, I've moved job. I've had 37 jobs. <laughs> I'm proud of that. But I've moved around a lot because I was always moving. You know, I was moving because I couldn't deal with conflict in the workplace. I couldn't deal with, you know, bullying, all lots of things. So I was always kind of moving on to another job and moving up. And, you know, I became really successful. I, I did well out of it, but it was about not staying in the same place. And I, you know, lots of people have stayed in the same place and now have, you know, lovely pensions and things. But, you know, people that have escaped abuse and have moved on and moved around a lot they they don't have that and people don't think of that really they don't they don't consider that it might have an impact 40 years later Fiona, it's really um i'm really glad that you brought that up because <clears throat> i wanted to ask how do or how did you you mentioned now you know you're sat there and you're um using your husband's uh computer um and <laughs> yeah. How do you get to a point? I'm just going to ask bluntly, like, how do you get to a point where you want to be in another relationship? Because, uh, ignorantly, I just from your story, I just feel like it would be so harrowing that you would just be like, you know what? Not even if you recognize that not all men are domestic abusers, you'd be like, I'm perfectly fine without a man, and I'll be that lady with 50 cats, and that will do me. Do you know what I mean? And so the fact that you kind of went back out into the world and looked for a part, how does that, how do you get to that point emotionally? I think I I wasn't looking for a partner. I I didn't want a partner um, when I met my husband. And we became really good friends and ended up, you know, getting married. But we, you know, I wasn't looking for someone. I didn't want to get married. I didn't want to have anyone. So I was very clear. But we just, <laughs> it didn't quite end up like that. And I think it's about 
he's had a hard time because I've, you know, two or three times he's said to me, I'm not Derek. And I've had to go, yeah, actually, you're not. And it's it's that. He, things come back. He's been very kind. He's been very good to me. And, you know, and it, as I say, he's had mm-hmm. a rough He's had a rough time, you know. I, I think a lot of people who get into other relationships say that they 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 kind of because of what's happened to them, they react in certain ways. There are certain reactions that you have, and it, somebody was said it's like it's like PTSD. I don't think it's that, but there there are elements of that where you actually, um, you know, you you do react badly to things. I can't. I still can't. I can't watch boxing. I can't watch fighting if there's a fight or something in a pub or in the street i have to disappear i do the flight thing immediately because i can sense it i have an uber sensitive antenna for for trouble you know when people are sort of squaring up to each other there's something in the air and you know that something's going to kick off i have that and i i can't i can't be anywhere near it and i have to go and my mm-hmm. husband is six feet eight mm-hmm. And he always says to me, oh, for goodness sake, you know, <laughs> I'm six foot eight. <laughs> what are you worried about? But it's not that. It takes you back. It triggers. It's that triggering. So I think sometimes <laughs> there are things that trigger. But um, I think you just you just live your life in a way that, yeah, there will be difficult tri- mm. times. And, and, you, and you start to realise, you know, for a long time I used to wake up sobbing, terrible nightmares and all sorts. And that you, you, you kind of work it through. You work through your system, and I've had counselling, and I've had all sorts of things, really good things. You know, I've I found some amazing people who've helped me along the way when I've needed it. So it's, you know, I've been lucky. I've had some fantastic people that have stepped in. So I, I think it's about just recognising that you're not with that same person, and it and it's not, you know, and life can be good. Life. I have this thing. It's um, as Gandhi said, um, be what's it be the change you want to see in the world that's what i i like to think yeah i can i can change something for other people i'm often running doing things like that hmm. fiona do you mind expanding a little bit on the process of you because you mentioned that you had this uh, feeling of guilt this idea of like unworthiness a uh, shame and oh do you mind speaking a bit more on the process of you reaching to the point where we are now? Because potentially if we have any listeners who kind of are in that place and they feel the shame, they feel the guilt and they can't really foresee them not feeling like that. Do you mind like just expanding on that process a little bit? It's not your fault. But once you start to realize that, if you can get some help, if you can get, just find somebody that you can talk to. It doesn't have to be a counselor. It doesn't have to be a, a, you know, professional. It could just be a friend or somebody that you can confide in. And I think it's about talking things through. There's a, a cathartic thing around writing things down. That's what I did. I used notebooks and I wrote things down and wrote stories down and all of that. So I, I think you, you have to try and get it out of your head. Um, and I and I just, I don't know why life, you know, I had so many choices that I could have made whilst I was coming out of that relationship. There were so many times I could have turned a different way and my life would be so different. You know, so every minute of every day we're making choices. And I think there were there were some times when I, you know, when I was living in bedsits where I would, you know, go and buy a bottle of vodka or whatever and try and use that to put me to sleep. And I realised that 
you know, I stopped myself. I think you, you, you make choices about things. I could have gone in all sorts of directions. I actually chose food as my demon. <laughs> I've, you know, I've been, you know, using food as a crutch for a long time. And it's about acceptance. It's accepting that, yes, that might be what you do when you, when you're feeling anxious or whatever, you you've got to find something that helps you feel a bit better. And I, and I think a compassionate approach, be compassionate with yourself. Don't beat yourself up about having been in this situation. I think that's so important. Don't, you know, there are millions of people who've been through this and there are millions of people who've come through it, got through the other side. And I always say, look at me, I, you know, you would never think to look at me and to see me in business and the things that I've done. I'm a, I'm a freeman of the city of London. I've herded my sheep over London Bridge. You know, it's like, <laughs> that was incredible. <laughs> I'm in the worshipful company of security professionals. I'm a liveryman. You know, they've got all these medieval customs, fabulous things. I've, I've done so many things, and, and I think it makes you like that. It makes you less fearful. It makes you grasp opportunities. I think you, you grasp opportunities in a way that other people might not. So there, there's a double side to it. You can hide away. You can feel mm. that, you know, you're not worthy, that, that you're not a good person. But actually inside of you, there is a good person wanting to come out. And it just takes time. You mustn't rush it. It takes quite a long time. And it takes a lot of tears. And somebody once said to me, you, it's like going along the road and falling into a hole. So when you, the next time you do it, you know the way out of the hole. And the time after that, the, the climbing out is easier. So if people are really, you know, depressed or in a dark place, you come mm. along and you go into that dark place again, but then you come out quicker. Mm -hmm. And I think it's that, it's that light, it's that light at the end of the tunnel, which is not someone with a miner's lamp walking the other way. Somebody said to me, <laughs> and you go, <laughs> what is the light at the end of the tunnel? <laughs> no, I'm sorry I'm being flippant, but I think sometimes you, yeah, people that are in a bad place need to just believe in themselves, just believe that there is a better life out there somewhere. And to, to see what I've done and, and say, actually, I could, you know, I could do that. I could be that person. It, it didn't, I wasn't different. I wasn't different to anyone else i just chose different things i just made each time you make a choice you choose mm. a direction that you go in and i've just been really fortunate i've found some lovely people in the world and fiona how how do um <clears throat> you stop the vicious cycle of potentially going from one abusive relationship whichever form of abuse that takes be it sexual emotional financial uh physical to then going into another relationship, which is also abusive and so on and so on and so on, because there I've, you know, a few people, I'm lucky that I've had, uh, have a very healthy relationship and have, have had for eight years. And I just got lucky that I chose the right person at 17. Um, so it was, it's been plain sailing ever since, but I know a lot of my friends who have had very jealous boyfriends and some really, really dark stories not it never got to physical abuse but really dark things yeah. they've left that relationship through by hook or by crook and they've got into another relationship six months down the line and the this guy's maybe not as jealous but he's showing that he is a jealous type and i'm not sure if jim concurs but at least in my kind of circle 
this jealousy aspect is kind of almost trivialized. It's like, oh, it's almost joked about. I'm jealous. And it's like, almost, they almost say it as like a point in their favor. And we said before, oh, I'm only jealous because I love you so much, right? It's kind of, it ties back into that. But how, you know, you've gone from being in one of the worst relationships one could possibly imagine to now being really happy, you know, with a guy who's six foot eight, who anyone squares up to him will square up to his knees. So how do you, how do you cross over that bridge? Um, because I know that a lot of people who might be listening, they might, because it's their norm, isn't it? Ultimately their norm is to be in that abusive Mm -hmm. relationship filled with jealousy and anything else other than that feels almost unworthy or, or like it shouldn't be. But I think when you come out of a relationship like that, your self-worth, your self-esteem is on the floor. You know, you have no self-worth. You And what you have to do and what, what I would always say to people is do not rush into another relationship. You have to learn to love yourself. You have to learn to heal yourself. You have to learn to live with yourself. You should always go and live somewhere on your own. Have friends and people around, but live on your own. Spend time on your own so that you can get to know who you really are and heal, you know, learn to heal. And then when you're ready, when the time is right, go out. And if you're going out, and look, I would say, don't look. I wasn't looking. <laughs> I was intentionally not looking. <laughs> so I think it's, it's almost don't look, don't, don't look for anybody. And the right person will turn up and, you know, <laughs> it will happen. I think there's such pressure on people, as I said earlier, such pressure on people to have partners and, you know, to have somebody and to have kids and all that stuff. Forget all of that. That If it's going to happen, it will happen. And if it happens in the right way, but you've got to learn to love yourself and live with yourself without anyone else there to, to change things. And a lot of people feel like they need someone else to make them whole. I've heard that so often. It's like, I need, you're the, you're the yin and my yang whatever it is it's not no you have to be a whole person you have to be a whole functioning happy solid person for someone else to come and be part of that life and and to live you know together but apart or do whatever you do you know there's there's good you've got to be in a good place and and lots of people run into another relationship often other perpetrators will kind of come and take over and rescue victims they'll come along and go oh i'll look after you horrible person you know dreadful i'll protect you and it's like no (laughs) no don't go there don't go there you know (laughs) i have a a dream that someday i'll win the lottery and i'm going to get a castle in scotland on an island and a helicopter and i'm going to just pick up domestic abuse victims (laughs) take them there de-brainwash them (laughs) they'll get to come back when they're thinking straight <laughs> it's that it's that you know you're brainwashed you, you, your brain is not functioning <laughs> properly you're not thinking straight and you're not making the right choices you're not making but that's not your fault i would say to yeah. anybody that's out there now anybody that's listening to this who is in an abusive relationship there is life after abuse there is the person that you are the, the essence of you person that's deep inside there hidden away because you are so damaged because you are so hurt because you are so scared there is someone there and you can come out of that a bit like a butterfly coming out of the the chrysalis 
and you will blossom somewhere else where people will love you, they will look after you, they'll, you know, they'll care for you in the right way, in a healthy way. And I think it's, yeah, but it's so easy. If, you're, if you've got no money, if you're scared, if you're running, you, you will turn to all sorts of things, but just be careful. Mm -hmm. Try not to jump into the same kind of relationship again. Just think about it. Fiona, it, it would be remiss to not cover the area, which mm -hmm. is roughly, I believe, last time I checked, was about 85% of the perpetrators of domestic violence are men. So by and large, this is, this is a male issue. Um, and you mentioned one of your colleagues is doing some work with, with in the community with, with young men. But I guess I'd love to ask you, like, what, what are like the common issues with these men who, who are abusing their, the, the people that they live with, like the people that they apparently love so much? Are there like common issues? Or are there, there are different common trends that you see, and, and what can, what can we do on that side of of addressing the issue? Psychopaths forever. I don't think you can change that. And who are violent and you know abusive, and they're the ones that carry out the homicides. And and I think there are things that police services and other people are doing with them, trying to you know deal with them. But there, then there is another uh, group of people who are. Um, in its kind of situational violence, there's situational domestic abuse where things happen. Um, and there are some really good programs out there to try and help these people, to try and change the behaviour. There's a, a drive program that goes on. Um, and there are other charities who are helping men. There's a, a charity called Respect, which is for male victims and perpetrators. Uh, there are a whole number of other, you know, mankind men's um you know there are a whole load of um groups for men for male um victims and for perpetrators and some really good work that's that's going on to try and help people stop abusing um i can't i can't comment on how successful they are um i think sometimes they are i think sometimes people can change depending on their circumstances depending on their social circumstances uh, there may be things that they can do I think some of this is, it's not genetic, it's learned behaviour. Being abusive is learned and, and often um, a perpetrator will have seen parental domestic abuse. They will have seen their father with their mother or another family member. They, it's learned. I, I had a, a mum say to me, she was in a refuge with a little boy and she said, oh, I, I do worry about him. And she, I said, look, it's not genetic. It's not, it doesn't have to be, he doesn't have to be like that. There are ways that you can help him. And there's some fantastic work that goes on in refuges. There's amazing, you know, people supporting the children, doing some fantastic work with them. And I think that's what's important. I think you have to get to, get to the children, try and get to the younger um, victims because children are now recognized in the new domestic abuse bill children are recognized as victims of domestic abuse now which they weren't and that's good because it means that there can be more support put in place so to go back to your, your question you know how do you how do you change how do you make someone change you can't make them change you can just try and help them change their circumstances I, I spoke to a guy who was running a domestic abuse perpetrator program in America 
few years ago, I was at a dinner and I was sitting next to him and I said, you know, how, how's it going? And he said, Fiona, he said, I'm so, you know, I just feel like I'm knocking my head against a brick wall. But he said, all we're doing really is changing, you know, we're getting them to recognise when they're going to become violent and we're trying to redirect that violence. So that's all I can say, you know, we're, we're redirecting. It's not changing how they feel and why they feel that they need to control, that they need to act out this violent behaviour. That, that you, I don't know how you change that. There are some very clever people around who could probably tell me there are some studies going on at the moment and people trying to find out exactly what you're saying, find out what we can do to, to help. But it has to be, it, we have to take the, the focus away from the victim, you know, that the victim has to move, that the victim has to go away. The perpetrator needs to be the one that we focus on to try and change that person's behaviour. And there's some incredible stuff going on with housing associations where they're looking at you know joint tenancies, they're looking at how they can break up joint tenancies. They're actually, for, where it's domestic abuse happening, there's some great work going on in the northeast, and um, they're looking at where someone is a perpetrator, they're actually rehousing that person away from the family. So the mum and the kids can stay in the house, which is incredible. Because in the past, the mum and the kids have had to go off to a refuge. or And you can imagine uprooting, you know, you've got the kids and you, one night you sort of run out the door and all they've got is what they're standing up in. It must be horrendous, you know, to have to do that. So they're trying to leave the victim and the, the children in, in their home, in their familiar surroundings, give them support give them, you know, protection and to take the perpetrator and, and give him the chance to start somewhere else, you know, away from the victim, put in place, you know, if they need um, any orders put in place, you know, to stop them coming near the, the victim and, and to put programmes in place to help them, you know, to try and help them get out of whatever, whether it's uh, substance abuse, whether it's uh, criminality, whatever it is, and try and if they don't want to do that, then there's a different way to deal with it. But there are opportunities now which never used to be in place. There are some excellent things going on. It, you know, some of the housing associations in the northeast are doing and, and elsewhere. But the ones that I know about are ha happening up here. I, I was asked to speak at a conference a couple of years ago. It was um, DOSA. It was Domestic Abuse Whole System Approach. And it was five police forces. It was Northumbria, um, Durham, Humber... Yorkshire, North Yorkshire, and some other ones. And they um, were looking, they got together with all of the agencies. So they got together with the um, domestic abuse services, they got together with social services, all of those. And they were looking at a whole system approach to domestic abuse. How do you change, you know, how do you change the lives of the victims and how do you change the lives of the perpetrators? And there was excellent work going on there. So there's lots of good stuff happening. I think that, you know, you hear the bad stories, but there are lots of good stories as Thank, well. Thanks for highlighting that. Um, <clears throat> I w wanted to, to wrap it up then. But before we we go, um, I, you know, you've written a book and I'm sure you're obviously a fountain of knowledge for, for all that's concerned with this. Every, every time we ask you a question, you've given us about like 17 different references <laughs> to follow up on. Um, so for every single, so for every single one of those references, I'm wondering, is there somewhere, um, where people maybe can follow you or, um, see what you're up to and what you're talking about so that they can kind of get more information, whether it's your own website or social media, where they can get more information on some of yeah. the references that you've been speaking about. 
yeah, I'm on I'm on Twitter um, and I'm on LinkedIn and I'm on LinkedIn as Fiona Bowman MBA um, and on Twitter as Fiona underscore Bowman. And um, I have the book, which is on Amazon. It's called Did I Wake You Pet? And it's um, on Amazon if you want to buy it or on Kindle. So um, that's just an insight. It's, it's a really good insight into the life of uh, a victim. It tells a few stories and just gives you a heads up and what might be happening. You might see some of those things happening to one of your friends or your, your family. So, I yeah, I do lots of things. If you Google me. If you Google Fiona Bowman, there's about five pages of <laughs> stuff that I've done. Beautiful. <laughs> but I do it really quietly. Round <laughs> the edges of society. I'm <laughs> out there and just working away. Beautiful. Well, we'll put all the tags and the links in um, our description. So anyone who wants to find uh, Fiona on social media or on the internet um, and find out more information about this, um, they'll have all of that at their fingertips. Uh, and I just want to say before you go, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. And uh, I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been lovely talking to you, you both. Really appreciate this. Thank you. Take care. Yeah, thank you so much. Really. Yeah. Hi, guys. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review if you haven't already. Every review helps us climb the podcast charts so that even more of you can listen to our amazing guests. We really appreciate the support. Remember to tune in next week. But until then, keep safe and have a good one.